given that our theme for this month is heritage and we're looking at a bit of history, I think for this moment, I need to begin with Stonewall, just for history and for context as well. Now, the Stonewall Inn was known as a gay bar in New York in the 1960s, but the 1960s, in that time, there was no question of being in the closet or out of the closet. There was only in. Public messaging depicted those who were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender as deviant, sex-obsessed, seeking to convert pure young men and women. Being associated with such people meant losing everything, job, family, home. And, and, people also felt the need to gather as we do as human beings. And they gathered in such places as Stonewall. And the people in a place such as this were diverse, as rare places tend to be. It was certainly a place for gay men, but also for lesbian, for women, for transgender women and men, for teenagers living in the park nearby when they could get in. It was always full. It was always dark. And the mob ran such places as this. Uh, and so there was also a relationship, something of a, an interesting relationship with the police because there were raids and the raids were expected in many ways. And there was an additional pressure, you know, part of that association. So if somebody was um, arrested, you know, by the police and that their, frequently their names would be published in the paper. Like this was real. This was real, the fear. But how can we not also gather as human beings? So one night, the raid in that moment at Stonewall came without a whole lot of notice. I understand about a 1.30 a.m., a prime party time. And there was only a few officers involved because they were used to compliant patrons. You know, there was a cycle. You get the raid, people get picked up, you reopen the bar, and so on. But this time, this time people responded differently. So you had transgender women in their cocktail dresses. They actually resisted. They refused. You had other people saying, "This, no, I'm not going to be taken in. I've had enough. And for whatever reason, in that moment, people had had enough. And they, in fact, did not comply. And amongst the first people who were active in this were the transgender folks. They were the active catalytic actors in this moment. Stormy de Laverie, Marsha P. Johnson, who was vocal and visible as a black trans woman, and Sylvia Rivera, Rivera, who was vocal and visible as a Latinx trans woman. And it was not just one night. The clashes went on for night after night. There had been other moments of resistance and other groups, but this protest, this made the mark. And within two weeks, you had the foundation, founding of the Gay Liberation Front. It was the first organizing on a larger scale. And one year later, 
there was the anniversary of the Stonewall riot that was the Christopher Street March. It was the first birthday party for the Gay Liberation Front on June 28, 1970. And this was, it's not just like it magically got okay after one protest. This was a dangerous moment. There were protests, there were assassinations, there was unrest. And the folks organizing this were like, how do we do this? Are we going to be okay? And there was a march from Stonewall to Central Park was the idea, and then have a great party. It was peaceful. And lo and behold, it wasn't just a few people or a few, a few friends and neighbors. About 2,000 people gathered. 2,000 people for this first moment. And it was the beginning of a movement. It was the start of a major shift in United States culture. And it was also the start of Unitarian Universalism finding its voice as well. As a congregation, this congregation, we are becoming more visible in being advocates and more visible in acting in solidarity with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, inter, intersex, asexual plus community. Because, because this includes our friends and our neighbors, because this includes our members for sure, but because also it is the right thing to do. Because we are also knowing and we know more about human development, human variety, and are slowly increasing in our social understanding. I recognize that in this moment, in this conversation, in this point of evolution, that people are in very different places as well. I don't assume that everybody is in, on the same page at the same time. So we have an opportunity of growing and understanding with each other, as well as being part of our larger world. We have this critical need, given, given the actions, especially the legal actions in the neighboring states and states across the country to be more restrictive against trans folks in particular, but for many reasons. We need to be visible and public, even while we are also growing and developing. So I want to lift up, kind of go back to some roots here and understand where we're coming from. How did we get here? In doing so, be exploring our values. Last month was welcoming, next month is generosity. This month, where are we coming from, is the focus. This is the gift of heritage, and heritage is complicated. In looking at just this story for today, I'm aware that the history is being told by those who survive, by those who hold on, and how do we do our best to look back and in information because so much was hidden, so much was not documented because people needed to be protected and were simply surviving. History is told by those who survived and are willing to share. So how many stories have been lost? How much history will never be known? What we can do in this moment is do well now. So I want to go back 
in the, in the similar time and age? And how are we showing up as in Unitarian Universals? And how are we showing up as a faith regarding queer history? And at the time, this is coming from our late wonderful religious educator, the Reverend Gene Navius, um, he figured out that he was gay during his ministerial internship in 1953. I mean, 1953. And once he figured that out, he went deep into the closet. Deep, deep, deep. As he said, to be gay was to be unemployed. Other history is also a bit sparse. Um, Jeff Wilson, who is a Unitarian Universalist and a UU Buddhist, uh, researched some of the history of same-gender unions in the United States. And the earliest, some of the earliest documented services of union for same-gender couples were performed by Unitarian ministers. Uh, Ernest Pipes in Santa Monica in 1957, and Harry Schofield in San Francisco in 1958. So I want to recognize how rare that was, and that as you know, a Unitarian Universalists, we are not separate from society. We are deep in the midst of it. And so in that moment, as a, as a faith in Unitarianism and Unitar Universalism at the time, we were of the society as well and not all that different. In 1967, there was a survey, the Unitarian Universalist Committee on Goals, they conducted a survey on beliefs and attitudes um, towards homosexuality within our association. And over 80% of the people who responded believed that homosexuality should be discouraged. So that's 1967. 80% okay. believed homosexuality should be discouraged. Can understand why Gene Navius said, I am in that closet. And individually, we were conflicted as well uh, from uurainbowhistory.net. It's a real site. I've really been enjoying it. Reverend Wayne Arneson, who is one of our elders in the faith now, cisgender, hetero man, lifelong UU, he recounts his perspectives as a youth and a young adult. Um, he was raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He was not prepared, coming from that community, to encounter LGBTQIA folks. And he got to know folks kind of after the fact in the course of his work. Uh, Richard Nash was one of the Unitarian Universalist pioneers who created a national Unitarian Universalist network and the Office of Lesbian Gay Concerns. And he was also active in the development of the Mattachine Society in Los Angeles. And Wayne says, I was unaware of Dick's involvement in the Mattachine Society or in his identity as a gay man. If I had known, this is Wayne speaking as a youth or reflecting on his young adulthood, if I had known the homophobic fear and hatred that lay just under the surface of my radical hippie persona would probably have frightened me away from him. So in this moment of summer of love, opening up social mores in society, there's still this 
still this fear and hatred that had been ingrained. But then there was Stonewall, and it really had an impact on our tradition as well. One of the ministers who, after they heard about Stonewall, Jim Stoll, he had been working with youth and young adults. And the events around Stonewall inspired him to live as openly and honestly as he could in our Unitarian Universalist religious context. He came out, not just like to friends, but to a whole UU conference all at once. And it's one of the landmark moments in our Unitarian Universalist history, and it's a little bit of a landmark in, I think, religious history in the United States as well, somebody really truly coming out as gay in a Protestant religion. And the reception he had, I'll go into that story a lot, a longer version of that story some other time, but he was, and no surprise, the room was mixed. It was beautiful and who supported him. And then you also had people who were like, mm-hmm. But Jim's commitment inspired others. And folks got together and worked towards making a larger statement happen in Unitarian Universalism as well. In 1970, so here's the, the first landmark moment in our, as a faith. In 1970, our Unitarian Universalist Association the General Assembly, delegates from congregations all over the country, passed a resolution to end discrimination against homosexuals and bisexuals. That's the language of the time. The resolution calls for congregations to develop sex education programs that promote healthy attitudes towards diverse forms of sexuality. 1970. So in 1967, 80% of people surveyed in, UU, in the UU world said discourage homosexuality. In 1970, the resolution to promote healthy attitudes. What a change. Three years. And then it continued from there. You had the foundation of the Unitarian Universalist uh, Caucus, later called Interweave by Richard Nash and Elgin Blair. They lobbied also for the Office of Gay Affairs. Um, you had the first, probably was the first publication of, in 1972, of an adult curriculum about homosexuality by a church and positive, right? We had the formation of a real office within our association in 1973, and then they actually funded it, and then they staffed it. Like, you can say we're going to do this, but then you got to show up with people and money, and they did. And in 1979, you have the Reverend Doug Morgan Strong become the first openly gay man to serve, be called to serve a Unitarian Universalist a congregation, 1979. So that's some of where we're coming from in the foundations and in the conversations and all. And we don't stop there. <laughs> Why would we stop there? We don't stop there. We affirm in 1984 same-sex unions conducted by the ministers who were starting to do that and encouraged congregations to support that effort. We had 1989 where we created the Welcoming Congregation Program 
for people, for congregations to complete and vote to be intentionally and publicly welcoming. This congregation completed that program uh, in, the course of its, in the course of its life. It's fascinating about the welcoming congregation program that some congregations did and some congregations did not at the time. And they wouldn't. There were some congregations where it's like, you know, we, we can't, we're not going to be able to do this. This would blow us up. We can't do this yet. Members of congregations also certainly still held a range of opinions and perspectives and biases. I know of at least one, and if not more, instances uh, where one of our great education programs is... Um, is a comprehensive sexuality program called, the first called About Your Sexuality, the next, now we have uh, Our Whole Lives. And I think as Our Whole Lives was coming into being, congregations frequently team up with other congregations so that you can share resources and teachers and have enough youth to take the program, the middle school age program and so on. And more than one congregation wouldn't let their children participate if the teachers for this program were gay or lesbian. That's what, I remember that growing up as Unitarian Versalist. Like, yes, you can have comprehensive sexuality education, but no, the teacher can't be gay. Hmm. but we just couldn't kind of help, like the tide was coming, right? Because it was certainly as I was starting to, in formation in, in Unitarian Universalist ministry, hearing, first starting to hear people kind of have that anxiety, that congregational anxiety about being known as the gay church. In fact, for, we still, I think, have a Unitarian Universalist pamphlet called, with, titled, Is My Church Gay? Because that's such a question. People get so much so anxious about, boy, if we're at all welcoming, we'll be, we'd be known by the gay church. Why is that a bad thing? I don't know. But it was a point of anxiety. So we're in process. The first transgender ministers were settled in ministries, out transgender ministers in 2002. That's still very much a work in progress. Folks who are trans tend to have shorter ministries than nearly every, than a lot of other folks. So today, today what we're trying to do, and people are trying to do to kind of understand history and claim this and keep helping us know where we're coming from and how much work we're still in process with, you have folks who are trying to capture those histories and make and document where we've been coming from. I'm so glad I found the resource, the uurainbowhistory.net, that was put together by the Retired Ministers and Partners Group. And it's full of accounts of lives and perspectives and efforts for voices to be heard. And it strikes me just how recent this history is. You know, we're in within living memory of this movement. I'm saying people like, yeah, we remember, our 19, we remember the 1960s, so some folks, right? 
and what life was like before Stonewall and what it was after the gay liberation movement. We are within living memory. The many of the ministers I've been reading about and some of the ones I've named, I encountered as an emerging minister. I remember Harry Schofield. I remember Jean Navius. I remember so many of these people who are passing in their time. The shift is remarkable. You know, 1967, 80%, nope, don't do homosexuality. 1970, yes, we should be inclusive and open and healthy. We're still in flux with efforts to, with our current global, uh, this kind of global social effort in this country to frankly, eliminate trans folks. And certainly, we're still learning how deep homophobia runs with recent developments of hate in the Morton school system just down the road, how much of that ugliness remains in our community. We are still in so much of a learning curve for ourselves, for each one of us, around gender and pronouns and more. We're still in a growing relationship about how to connect with folks who are black, indigenous, people of color, and the intersection of all of those identities and histories. We do so by telling stories of and including real people, such as Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, we do so by telling the story of Jim Stoll and his brave coming out, of Jean Navius who went into the closet, was able to talk about it, and then came out and has been one of our, one of, had been one of our most excellent educators. We tell the stories we have, keeping in our hearts space for the stories that we'll never know. We are still learning, becoming more visible and more public. And keep meeting the challenge in our language, in our perception, and in our understanding. Recognizing how deeply rooted the pain is for so many folks in the LGBTQIA community. And how that's impacted all of us in relationship as a result. With history, it makes us easier to know, to help to meet people where they are and say, I see you. And to be conscious of our impact when we ignore or make light of somebody's names or pronouns, for example. And I'll say, we are in this work for a much larger reason than ourselves, people are looking at Peoria as a place to land and find refuge as they make decisions to leave unsafe places around the country. And in fact, as of this week, we are now connected to one of those networks. We practice and understand our heritage and the legacy of it so that we may become more welcoming more deeply offer a radical welcome and put those values into action.
and the work remains, and we remain in the work. Let us go forth and continue in the spirit of love that is so abundant and we believe and participate in in every moment. Let us go forth in the spirit of love and justice and mystery and wonder that more people might live such an abundant life. Amen.